Welcome to another episode of the On The Way podcast, a uh, podcast promoting a compassionate, non-dualistic approach to faith. My name is Dom Fay. I'm joined by our two regulars, Peter Catt and Sue Wilton. Thanks for your time, guys. You're welcome. Thanks, Dom. And uh, our special guest today is uh, Michael Wood, a chaplain and a self-described space maker. That's even in his email (laughs) signature. Um, And I might just get Michael to start with unpacking that. What do you mean by space maker? Just as a bit of an overview. I think uh, many years ago when I started using um, circle process in my uh, leadership in a church, I was uh, kind of thinking about um, how to describe what I do. And one of the processes um, that I use is called open space technology. And it's a very low tech um, way of bringing groups of people together to talk about things that they care about and to accept responsibility for what emerges from the conversation. And um, what I realized that what was actually going on is that we were creating a space for conversation. and so I just thought, well, in terms of uh, something to put on the email address <laughs> or website, I thought I'll describe myself as a space maker. So and that's we, where it comes from. Well, we comes will from. unpack that, uh, yeah. I imagine, over the next hour or so. The, the four of us have just been to lunch and I think already had half of this conversation <laughs> over the meal table there. So hopefully we can, uh, we can uh, recreate parts of what we've just discussed. And I guess the scope of today's podcast will be about uh, how we communicate live alongside and love people who perhaps view the world differently or or have a different opinion, different thoughts, different ambitions, um, how we can reconcile that together instead of letting uh, it divide us. Um, Now, we are going to discuss open space technology and I guess the thinking behind it as a means to answering that question or providing a, a, a different way of living. Michael, you've described your discovery of open space technology in an article on your website as something that, uh, and the quote here is, uh, it changed everything. It was like black and white. It was like a conversion experience. I'm a bit like the ex-smoker or the recovering alcoholic who wants to talk about how their life has changed. (laughs) Um, Can you just speak a bit to to set up this conversation about where you're at before you found these different ways of of having conversations, of running uh, groups? Yeah, sure. So my um, experience of uh, leading in organisations started when I left school and I joined the Merchant Navy. Uh, So working in the Australian shipping industry, and uh, if you're working in that context, it's very hierarchical. So it's tiered from the master of the ship right down through a whole series of first officer, second officer, third officer, fourth officer, and cascading down. Um, So that was my first experience of leadership, is that it was structured, it was top-down. And then uh, a few years later, I uh, moved into the um, office of this shipping company and started studying business and did a business degree majoring in personnel management. And... Uh, at that stage, the kind of language which was around the traps in management was a, a process called management by objectives. And uh, some of us will be familiar with this process because it's still used widely. Um, and that is you bring a group of senior people together and you talk about um, what our vision is. Um, sometimes it's the chief executive saying, this is my vision. Um, sometimes it's a group of senior people saying, what is our vision and how do we create some objectives for realising that vision and how do we generate strategies and it kind of again cascades down through the organisation and people at the bottom of the organisation observe that and um, they either love it or they kind of roll their eyes and go "Mm, you know here we go again Uh, a new bunch of brilliant ideas coming from the top and there's nothing bad or malicious about that it's just kind of that's the way we've absorbed the way you do organisational life well I had and I think a lot of people absorb that So when I went into the church and became a priest and started in parish ministry, that's the way I exercised ministry because it was the only way I knew how to lead. I'd absorbed that from my experience. What I discovered over a period of time is that it was absolutely exhausting for me and I'm not sure was particularly energising or liberating for the congregations that I worked with. Um, So I just... Basically, I started to get really tired um, and kind of de-energized and almost depressed by the whole thing and really started to say that there's got to be a better way, but I didn't know what it was. And that's when somebody said we ought to talk to this guy. Uh, Subsequently, 
become a mentor of mine, um, Brendan McCaig, who had been doing some work in Australia with open space technology. This was 15 years ago. And um, learned the process and really just kind of just completely opened my imagination and mind to a different way of leading, uh, which was more about hosting space for conversation so that we could listen to what everyone in the, uh, the group was discerning, noticing, getting excited about, rather than starting with my answers and trying to say, this is what you should be doing because they're my answers. So I suppose for, for people who are maybe in a church, in an organization, in a social group, which runs on the model of, you know, one person or, or one group of leaders setting a vision, coming up with what's going to happen and passing that on to everybody else. This is a different way of being in, uh, I guess, organization and community with other people. Yes. And I, and I like the words you use there, a different way of being, because I see this as being uh, in the world in relationship to other people in a different kind of way, as opposed to kind of just pulling a, a technique off the shelf and then mechanistically imposing it on other people, which would actually be the problem of the old paradigm um, or the pre-existing paradigm saying, well, I've now got a great new tool which I'm going to use on you. So it's uh, And open space can and has been used in that way by some people, and I think that's pretty unhelpful. So I think to respond to your words, it's a different way of being is, is helpful. Hmm. I might throw to you here, Peter. I remember one of the first conversations I had with you, you were discussing the difference between debate, discussion and dialogue. And dialogue is a pretty key theme of this different way of being. Can you just, uh, I guess, expand a bit on those definitions and, and how they differ? Sure. Yeah, I think it's really important stuff. Um, the word discuss has the same uh, root as uh, percuss, means to beat up. <laughs> so if you discuss something with someone, you really are out to beat them up so that you win. Um, debate uh, has its has its root, uh, the word to defeat. And so if you're debating, as we all learnt at school, you know, debating is putting forward an idea and someone adjudicating and deciding that the team for the the for the case is one and so on whereas dialogue means to flow between the word flowing between and so a dialogue is more like uh, is best imagined being like a river as it meanders down a river valley and it it sort of moves to one side and comes back the other way and as it flows down the valley uh, meaning a uh, uh, cruise and the river broadens and so as the river broadens, more people uh, enter into a deeper understanding of each other, they hear each other, and dialogue means that everyone ends up being transformed. So just as a river takes you on a journey to a different place, when one enters into true dialogue, everyone ends up in a different place at the end of the process, rather than uh, beating the other or defending one's position there's an openness that actually means everyone ends up being transformed. And, and I think most people's experience of any sort of hot topic doesn't even have to be a hot topic. It could be as simple as where to go for dinner tonight in a social group uh, comes from a, a situation of everyone entering the room, perhaps believing firmly their own opinion and everyone else is a bit of an idiot. And then ultimately with the discussion and debate models tends to end with them leaving the room, being more certain that they're right and more certain that everyone else is an idiot. And actually no progress, no harmony is is reached at all, Michael. So, mm. so this might be, I guess, a good way to now present the alternative of open space technology, which is founded in dialogue. As an overview, what, what, is, what are the principles? What is the, the idea of open space technology? Sure. So open space technology was developed uh, in the United States by a chap, um, called Harrison Owen about 30 years ago. And uh, Harrison Owen uh, w was, is an Anglican or Episcopal priest. Um, and he had done work in a couple of other contexts as well in organisational transformation work and also working in the Peace Corps, I think, in uh, Africa. And he had noticed through his Peace Corps work, for example, that um, when communities, indigenous communities, wanted to sort something out in their community, they sat in a circle 
and uh, in the marketplace in the in the village square and they talked for as long as they needed to with whoever showed up in order to work through whatever they need to talk about so the, he ended up describing the circle as the architecture of collaboration um, and um, that was one influence that shaped him the other influence is that he had organized a couple of um, conferences uh, on organizational transformation which were designed along very traditional lines so and we've probably all been to these conferences you have a front end with lots of organized guest speakers that you've pulled in experts in the field and you have sort of a whole series of pre-organized uh, seminars that people can choose to go off into small seminar rooms but everything's basically highly planned and controlled and organized and scheduled in advance he said, when I looked at the way the conference actually unfolded, um, I noticed that the really energetic conversations didn't happen in the scheduled sessions so much as over the coffee breaks and the meal times. Mm. And he said, I was a very slow learner um, and I organised the next conference in exactly the same way as I did before. And at the end of the year, I sat down and I looked at it and I said, all the really energised conversations happened in the meal breaks and the tea breaks. And he said, over my uh, second martini on the back of an envelope, in 20 minutes, I devised open space technology. And my basic concept was, here is a conference which is 100% coffee break. And um, that was the basic concept. And the idea of a base of coffee break or a meal break is that you associate whoever comes are the right people. So that's the first principle. Whatever happens in the conversation is the only thing that could have. It just kind of emerges. Uh, the the um, conversation begins at the right time and ends at the right time. In other words, it just begins and ends organically according to where the energy in the group is. And there's one principle, uh, it's called the law of two feet, and that is you either you, people can walk up into the conversation and engage with it if it sounds interesting, or if you're in a conversation and you think this is not for me anymore, you have the freedom to get up and simply walk out of the room. And how many meetings have we been in where we wish we could have done that? <laughs> can, so, can you just cover those? So those those four so, and the one again, because I think these uh, have a lot of power, especially in the need to relinquish control um, yeah. in discussions or, or dialogue. So um, so Harrison built the open space technology process really around those four principles, which is you start with a, a compelling question that you would like to invite people to join in. So they're not there because they, they're under compulsion, but because they're interested in the topic. It's usually a complex um, topic which invites passion and uh, diversity and engagement to, and responsibility to show up. Um, and the basic principles of engagement are we sit in a circle, um, we invite people to host the conversations that they want to have, so people stick the topic up on the wall that they want to talk about, which is related to the primary overarching question. Uh, and uh, the principles are then, if you convene a conversation, you trust that whoever comes to your conversation are the right people um, because they care to be in your conversation. They share that interest. Um, Whatever happens is the only thing that could have. So at the beginning of an open space meeting, we have absolutely no idea what's going to happen. Nothing is scheduled except for the convening question. Now, this is obviously is a slight challenge to some of our control needs because you can potentially go into an open space meeting of one or two days with absolutely no agenda. And it tends to be people who are fairly uh, fearless, um, who are willing to uh, engage with that level of um, ambiguity and uncertainty. Um, so what ones have I covered? Whoever comes are the right people. Whatever happens is the only thing that could have. The third principle is whenever it starts is the right time. So if you're convening a conversation, you kick it off at the right time, which is whenever you want to start it. And uh, it's over when it's over, meaning um, you might have a scheduled conversation of, say, an hour, but it might be that after half an hour you feel like you've done the work that needs to be done. And um, once that's done, you get up and you make a cup of tea or join another conversation or go outside and have a nap on the lawn <laughs> in the sunshine, which I have done at, an, at a several conferences. So, so why do you think this is so different to the normal way of, uh, I guess, conversing? Well, I should probably throw that back to conversation partners here and say, what do you think? Um, but I think what I notice more than anything is the incredible freedom that it gives the group to engage with the things that they really care about rather than 
feeling like they're being forced to engage with the things that the hierarchy thinks they should be interested about, interested in. Because in, normally in facilitated and controlled meetings where everything is planned in advance, the conversation host, which is usually the senior person in the organisation or a manager or whatever, has an agenda of some kind that they want to kind of push through. And so the whole process is designed to somehow realise that agenda. It might be sound like a consultative process, and often it genuinely is, but really the power in the end belongs to the person who's convened the meeting. In open space, what happens is that the power shifts to the community, to the group of people who are in the circle. And the basic principle is nothing is going to come out of this except what we choose to make happen. Um, and the sponsor or the host of the conversation is in the circle with everyone else, so they have an equal say. But they're sitting alongside the group in a collaborative way and saying, I'm with you. I'm so rather than being over you or under you, I'm with you. And so it's generally, gen genuinely collaborative, meaning we are labouring together on this complex topic that we have to address. And anything that emerges will emerge out of the conversation. There is ideally no pr highly preset expectation of what's going to happen in the end. And I think that's very different to the way most meetings are engaged with and that's not to say i just want to clarify that it's not to say that open space is the best or only way of meeting it isn't there are some times when decisions need to be made and a manager or an authorized leader or someone in control needs to say we're going to do this now uh, and the example i often give is when i flew into brisbane a few days ago i'm thinking to myself I don't want the captain and the co-pilot to be having an open space meeting in the cockpit, <laughs> right? I want the captain to be making decisions and giving instructions and saying to the co-pilot, turn right 10 degrees, and the co-pilot says, yes, ma'am. So uh, th this kind of process is appropriate for collaborative dynamics. It's not appropriate for every necessarily for everyday decision making. So, how do you know? And I might throw this one at you, Sue. How when? How do you know what mode to approach different conversations or different settings with? How do you know when it's time to say, "All right, we've got to make decisions now," and it's time to say, "All right, we need to sit down and and hear what what's on people's hearts, on people's minds." Mm. I mean, the obvious one is safety. You know, if something is unsafe and there's a time frame particularly and you have a time frame which to make it safe, then someone makes a decision and you act on it. Um, also, time can constrain other things, not just safety concerns. Time can constrain things like um, jobs that just need to get done in order for the maximum benefit for the community. And so there are times that uh, those kind of decisions are made. What, what I have discussed Covered, well, what, the way that fear, when we think about safety, fear is, um, you know, it's a helpful thing sometimes if you really need to keep people safe. There's times that you are necessarily fearful for yourself or others and you need to act. However, fear can be a driving force in all kinds of conversations. And often it means that the two models of, of conversation that happen are one that where someone's just the leader at the top is, is didactically presenting, this is where we're going. And they might do that quite unashamedly and sometimes it's necessary and a lot of times it's not necessary to do it that way. Um, but the other thing that the people do in terms of thinking about fear and keeping the group safe is they think, well, we've just got to let them all have a say. And so they set up a, a, a conversation that is rigged from the start. Mm. It's rigged from the start just to say, you know, so that the people at the top have decided how much time they will have, what the outcome will be, and that really the whole agenda is that, that they can voice their concerns and we can kind of soothe things down a little bit and the community can get, can get on with doing its job without the um, the. the difficult tensions that have been around mm. and so you know I've, I've seen that model so many times and everyone goes away feeling unsatisfied because they know deep down you, you know yes even though you had some airtime, that nothing was being changed and so that's the point really I guess when you're making a decision what kind of conversation if you're not willing to change anything don't bother having the conversation mm. and I, I guess then it it really puts the emphasis on the listening um, as opposed to the speaking. It puts the emphasis on uh, if you want to do pre uh, preparative work before the, the meeting of people, that 
preparative work perhaps should be inner work to get yourself in a position where you can actually deeply listen rather than working on your PowerPoint slides or your, your graphs. Mm. Would you agree mm. with that, Michael? Yeah, I think ideally that's the, that's the um, as we talked about before, the way of being, I think, is to go in with an attitude of openness um, to what is emerging in the circle. And that really relates to what Peter was saying before about dialogue as being an emergent process. Another way of talking about dialogue is dia meaning across and logos meaning meaning. Logos means meaning. So the meaning emerges across the space between us. So if you can imagine a circle with a whole bunch of people sitting around in the circle, uh, each one of those people come in with a particular agenda and particular views of the world and the particular lenses, but ideally what we're hoping to give people an experience of is that there will be something emerge out of the conversations through the process of listening which is bigger, different, richer, more dynamic than um, the individual players. So it's bigger, it's more and richer than the sum of the parts. But to, for that to uh, be achieved, ideally we would need to be trying to listen to each other. And I think that requires sp- time and physical space so hence Harrison Owen's observation that the circle is the geography of um, sorry the architecture of collaboration so the circle helps convey that openness and spaciousness and the amount of time that we give it um, conveys openness and spaciousness so if we we um, need to give it sufficient time for the diversity in the circle to emerge um, Sometimes people try to do use the, do these processes and squeeze them into half an hour. Sometimes someone will ring me and say, I'd like to do an open space meeting next Friday between 9 and 10 in the morning. And um, so we need to have a conversation about ex- expectation. The genuine creativity and dialogue takes time. And uh, we're talking about hours and hours and hours and hours sometimes. And that can be frustrating and time-consuming um, sometimes needs to be uh, wrestled with it is uh, obviously very difficult you do write in that piece i referenced earlier michael that forgiveness and reconciliation lie at the heart of the christian story and yet human beings often find these things hard to translate into practical everyday organizational and community life and i think that you know there'd be many people hearing this concept of open space and thinking that sounds like such a better way of 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 doing things of being however if you picked any of the hot topics that are around, it doesn't even have to be necessarily that hot a topic. If you picked any topic and you did put people in a circle, I imagine if they're not used to it, your gut response is still, well, I hope we're leaving this room all agreeing with what I believe. Or, I, <laughs> I hope we're, we're leaving this room. If I want the pizza to be the, the food on Friday night, I hope we're all leaving saying it's pizza because you go in with a reluctance to, a complete reluctance to give up what you're taking in. So I suppose that is that something that the the inner work you have to do to participate in one of these conversations that you have to be able to surrender your own need to be right or is it about just working through it in the conversation? I might give that one to to Peter. Um, uh, my experience is that the process actually transforms people because of the discipline of uh, open space or talking circles. People actually get transformed. Because you can't expect people to have done the inner work before they arrive because they're going to arrive with all sorts of um, different agenda. They're going to bring that with them and require them requiring them to do sort of pre-work is not going to work because people come, respond to the invitation for all sorts of reasons. Uh, and I guess my most profound experience of how it does transform people is it may be five years ago I was asked to do a presentation to the Mothers' Union annual meeting on same-sex marriage. And um, I thought, well, that'd be an interesting thing to do. So I hatched the idea of going to the Mothers' Union annual meeting with uh, two colleagues and we ran talking circles. And I introduced the subject by saying, if you... Want, if you want information, here's a book you can read that's got the pro case and here's another book that you can read that's got the no case. But we're going to do this exercise and we uh, ask people to consider um, uh, just two questions because the group, we had 86 people and only three of us could to facilitate. So they were really large circles. 
And I ask people to reflect on the question, what do you appreciate about being a member of the Mother's Union? And secondly, what are your hopes and dreams for marriage and family life? They were the two questions we asked. And people responded to those questions, and I heard some of the most beautiful things I've ever heard people say about belonging and how things had been, uh, how the church had got things wrong in the past. And the general consensus was, in the end, um, that whatever marriage and family life becomes, we should support it. So we didn't really talk about same-sex marriage per se. The interesting thing for me was that still, five years later, I have people from the Mother's Union coming up and saying to me, you know that talk you did on same-sex marriage for the annual meeting? It was one of the best talks I've ever heard anyone give. (laughs) And I literally started it off by saying, here's a book, here's a book, now we're going to do this process. And that was my only input, other than to become one of the circle holders. And something happened in those circles that actually led those people to feel like they had engaged with an issue at depth. Mm. And all they had done was listen deeply to each other. They hadn't listened to me at all because I'd hardly (laughs) said a word. And yet I still get the kudos of being this great guy who came and gave this great talk. Which So so for me it shows the power of the circle to actually take people on a journey so that they feel like they have learnt something profound. Mm. And it's from from each other. It wasn't from me. It wasn't from the expert, in inverted commas. So when we were just having lunch, you were speaking about restorative practices, which I think ties in with that um, and your formal work in schools. Can you just speak a bit on that? Okay, restorative practices approach where um, New Zealand has been a leading light in this in both the justice system and in schools where you bring um, victims and perpetrators together, basically. Um, people, and in schools it plays out at kids who have hurt one another, hurt another child in terms of physically or bullying or um, any of the other kind of nasty stuff that can go on in school playgrounds um, or at home on the internet. And instead of there being a um, crime and punishment mentality, you bring together those who have been affected and those who are the ones perpetrating. And so you get them together in a circle. And this is where it does relate to the, the circle work because its prime objective is to listen and to really hear one another. It's, it's not an easy process. You know, it's far, far more difficult to actually sit down and face up to the person you have hurt than to, to sit, you know, detentions for a month. You know, because you actually you can come go through detentions for a month and still not be changed at all, but it is very hard not to be changed by sitting in a room, eyeballing the person you hurt and hearing them say something like, you know, when I would open up my um, Facebook page or my emails that morning... Um, I I just couldn't go to school and I had to lie to mum about being sick because I couldn't face being there or I was so afraid I couldn't go near my computer for a while um, because I just didn't know what it was going to say and then I get to school and I imagine everyone is talking about me and I feel so ashamed and you sit there and eyeball someone who you have done that to or they say they haven't slept in three nights you know, it, it is so much harder to actually uh, to to look at yourself in that way. But when you hear it, what happens then? If when people are really listening, then they start to talk about their own weakness too. They actually start to go, you know, when I was doing that, you know, that was uh, at first I didn't, I had no idea. That is is the most common to me. I had no idea it would have felt like that. And that capacity to put yourself in someone else's shoes is ha- is what happens whenever we are deeply listening. I think. Um, because we need one another to be able to be transformed. We can sit quite comfortably with our own sureties, um, our own self-justifications, if you don't actually have to face one another and really listen. If you really listen, then you get an insight into what's going on for them, into their own pain, the own weakness and the vulnerability of the other person, and you walk a mile in their shoes. And I think that's happening with you. And restorative practices was an amazing... um, it's an amazing process for, you know, often you would find great resentment. If you had a bullying situation and you punished the perpetrator, 
that all you did was create more more angst, more resentment. Probably that child, as much as we would try to protect them, they're likely, you know, kids, if kids want to bully, they can find subtle, sneaky ways of doing it, you know, and these kind of things can go on like constant warfare for years. But if you do this kind of thing, I've seen kids be friends with the one who bullied them for four or five years after that. And it totally transformed also their view of, of what was going on for someone who would do things like that. They're not the all-powerful, um, confident person they saw them as. They, they are actually a vulnerable human being just like them. And I guess that that sort of reconciliation is something I think everyone is uh, hungry for in some way at the moment, whether it be um, a conservative voter with a liberal voter or whether it be a religious person with a non-religious or perhaps someone who views religion differently, there does seem to be a lot of division. I'm not sure necessarily more than ever, but a lot prevalent at the moment of division and that ability to find reconciliation with the people on the other side of the division is is sorely needed. So I suppose the first element of that and what this teaches us, this open space technology, the principles behind it, is that you you need to almost... I'm not sure here. I'll, I'll put this as a question to you, Michael. But do you need to almost get through an outer crust of of what you're saying initially, your opinions, your thoughts on the matter, and then only through working through that do you get to the, the deeper truth and the deeper humanity? I think that's probably right um, in my experience. Certainly when I look to, to come to open space technology again, which is often um, run over an extensive period of time, maybe a full day or possibly even two days if it's a particularly hot topic, is that what happens in the first few hours uh, is that everyone comes in, including me, um, if I'm a member, of, not as a facilitator, but is, is, is sitting in the circle as a member, um, with our own agenda that we need to kind of almost download. So the first, often the first few hours is people simply like smacking their agendas up on the wall and talking vigorously from their own perspective. But that as people go through time and as they kind of unburden that and get it off their chest, the atmosphere of the space settles into a much deeper level of listening where the deeper things are starting to emerge through the process of listening. And just to think of an example, actually, I remember doing um, a two-day weekend open space meeting for a religious community, it wasn't a Christian community, another community in Australia um, that want, that had a big decision to make, which was around the sale of a major piece of property in order to relocate their main centre to another state. And this property, um, which is worth several million dollars, so it was a big decision. The decision to make that move was a big one because a lot of many members of the community had been connected to that centre for 15 years and were therefore deeply emotionally connected to it. And so some of the conversations that were held were very conflictual, a lot of anger being expressed, a lot of tears and frustration and, you know, why are we doing this and who makes the decisions and where the power has been wielded and all those kind of things. And one particular breakout space was being hosted by a woman who was holding the floor and there were about 30 people gathered around her and conversation was going backwards and forwards and I had decided just to go for a little walk around the block um, and come back a bit later (laughs) and people were using the Laura two feet to take themselves out of the conversation into the kitchen just to have a breather occasionally and this is the magic of the self-organising system is that the group can self-regulate its... um, emotional state. It doesn't need a facilitator to be trying to kind of fix it up or patch it. They're self-regulating their emotional state. And eventually there came a point where suddenly the woman who was kind of hosting this breakout space just started weeping and said, what am I going to hand on to my grandchildren? So that was the deeper underlying issue that you're talking about. It was a question for her of legacy. It wasn't actually about the property or about the way the, the it was all these other things. Was, all the superficial issues were still there and were right, but the deepest underlying issue was, I want to hand something on to my grandchildren and I'm not going to be able to. Now that takes time for that to emerge 
and it takes trust and it takes the cut and thrust of the conversation. So often these dialogues are not nice, they're not pretty. They can get pretty ugly and fraught. But people can choose using the law of two feet to engage, move in and out of them, and ultimately to trust that the spirit will bring people through the chaos to some kind of peace on the other side. And Harrison Owen often said, and this has been my experience, wherever space is opened, peace breaks out. Which I think is a beautiful statement and is very true of my experience. When you give people, you set up the conditions for people to engage respectfully with each other, trust them to do the work, don't try to intervene and control them, which is what most facilitation processes do. Providing you give it enough time, people can work their way through it. And a colleague of mine has just done some work just this last week with some Aboriginal communities that were having to deal with some very fraught conflicted issues and um, lots of tears and frustration and anger but in the end they came they found their way through it self-organization delivered um, an amazing outcome at the end which there's no way could have been predicted or controlled by a standard facilitator standing up and thinking that they knew best um, you you wrote in your piece about uh, your work as a chaplain at a university in Western Australia and about how early on in that work you did make the mistake of, of falling, I suppose, back into the old uh, the way of doing things, of the um, presenting an idea and, and trying to win people over to it. Um, can you just share a bit on, on that personal story and then how you found, uh, I guess, more fruit, uh, a more fruitful approach through these sorts of technolo- these sorts of techniques and these sorts of uh, approaches? Yes, well, I'm a slow learner, and um, uh, I always say open space facilitators are usually recovering control freaks, and, and <laughs> I am one, So, and we have habits. And so when I went into this new context, I, I wanted to make a good impression, of course, you know, I thought, what projects or something can I get up in order to, you know, look good or make a good impression in this new location, please me, please the bishop, you know, whatever. Um, so I just fell into the trap of trying to organise stuff. And then, fortunately, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, I think, um, one day I thought, oh, there you go, you're doing the same thing again. And I thought, just stop, you know, and just listen to what's emerging around this place. And, of course, any sensible leader would know this. Like, so, I'm, you know, I'm a slow learner. Listen. Um, so I just started listening for what was... I said, who can I, I just started asking questions, who can I talk to and listen to around this place to find out what's going on and did that for six to 12 months and found that there were a few people around who were interested in engaging in a particular project. It ended up being called the UWA Religion and Globalisation Initiative. So at that stage, it was just random people thinking, how do we um, make connections between the university and the rest of the world? Um, particularly around the topic of religion. And this is a university that has a fairly secular tradition and normally doesn't do anything to do with religion. So um, we started by um, just trusting these principles of emergence. We had an open space meeting. We draw, draw, drew people together and we trusted the process of emergence to generate the way forward rather than trying to control it too much. And so people just started coming out of the the woodwork and it just kind of miraculously happened and um, I remember sitting in a meeting one day uh, when this was some way down the track and the the initiative had got quite well established I was sitting next to a little old Catholic nun who uh, who was also a professor emeritus professor Veronica Brady who some people will know wonderful um, woman um, teacher of English literature at the University of Western Australia and she had been on part of the I think one of the steering groups for this initiative and she was she just looked at me and shook her head and said Michael if someone had told me even 10 years ago that this was happening I would have said thought they were mad I guess that's just been another experience and I've seen this played out many times where where we trust the process of listening dialogues creating space not trying to control it too much looking for the natural connections the synchronicities 
the emergement, what I would say theologically, the emerging movements of the spirit of reconciliation and peace. We trust that and we run with it rather than trying to control it too much. Miracles happen. Don't get too supernatural about that word. <laughs> so. Well, you, you do describe open space as a way of practicing peace rather than just talking about it. Um, however, Peter, obviously when you are in certain positions uh, in organisations or in groups that perhaps might not be interested in the open space model or might use different approaches, perhaps you work for a company that sends out the corporate vision every year and you just have to put up with it, you just have to read it. How can you, I guess, be a practicer of peace even in a community where where you don't have the open space, is it still possible for you to do it yourself? I think so. I mean, the, the principles of, of trusting emergence uh, can be, uh, I think the principles that apply to open space and talking circles can be applied in all sorts of ways. Uh, but we do need to understand that this is actually countercultural. Our culture has been formed by, I think, two really strong paradigms. One is the military and the other one is the Industrial Revolution and they're both very mechanistic, um, controlling, directional paradigms that have influenced the West. And so wherever one can, one needs to apply the little influence and little, you know, small teams can actually do some open space in their own, or at least the principles of emergence, they can ask the question, so what what do we notice about what's happening, um, what's emerging, just even asking that question, what's emerging rather than what are we going to impose on the system, allows people to begin to notice change. Um, and you don't have to use See, one of, the, one of the tricks or one of the problems that we trick ourselves with is thinking that you have to apply a talking circle or open space to engage in emergence. Mm. They're, they're actually just techniques that help us recognise that it's happening all the time and that, that around any cooler conversation, because that's what Harris and Owen was asking us to do, any cup of coffee, there may be ideas that are emerging. And if we learn to listen for emergence, we will find it happening all over the place. Mm. And so someone who is part of an organisation where it's all done in a hierarchical, directional, vision, mission statement, sort of KPI sort of thing, still in their own place, while they're having cups of tea with friends, can say, oh, look what's emerging from our conversation. How are we going to honour that which is emerging? And they can model transformation in small places and you know, it is as Margaret Mead said it's small groups of people doing different things that's changed the world you know or they can change the world and in fact it's the only thing it ever has so we don't need to think oh we have to impose open space on this whole organization because that's just the old model again yep. of we're gonna we're gonna fix this by putting this in place you mm -hmm. you do what you can where you are in your team um, and once people begin to recognise that self-organisation is a thing, it's the way the world really works, emergence does happen, and, it, and then the choice is whether you attend to it or don't, then you can engage often and everywhere. Thank you, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> so when something emerges from a conversation, let's say you're having a few cups of teas and suddenly you start to realise there is a real growing appetite for maybe a new service or a new program or, you know, a, a new initiative of some sort. People want to see this happening. We've got a real passion for this. How do you then enable that emergence of new life without just making it, you know, like, all right, well, people want that. So now we will jump back to the old systems and implement it and force it on people. How do you enable that emergence of new life in this, with the same principles of how it came about. Well, I think the uh, I think Peter's is really. I just thank you again, Peter, for clarifying that this is not about imposing a process on people, but looking at the underlying principles of emergence and self-organisation. So, if we keep that in mind, then that also applies to whatever is emerging from conversations in terms of implementation. So. First of all, the organisation may well have, probably does, have some basic boundaries that we can't cross. So, for example, um, whatever we do, um, we may have chosen that it's not going to step outside of the laws of the land, 
for example, or we might have organisational policies that at the moment constrain us at a broad level to do or not do certain things. So that needs to be taken into account. It's not to say that laws or policies can't be changed or pushed, but they need to be taken account of seriously. Um, is it ethical? Is it legal? So that's a kind of a first lens that you might throw it through. You might throw it through the lens of does this project bear any resemblance to our founding story or narrative, the reason we exist? So, for example, I would imagine, Peter, you might like to say something about this. If somebody wanted to set up a casino in the back of St John's Cathedral as a good fundraiser, I would imagine that might not meet that particular test of... Um, being in accordance with our founding story. So that's kind of another lens you would run it through. Sure, yeah. And then beyond that, uh, you would then say, you would then apply the um, principles of self-organisation. Um, whatever happens is the only thing that could have. Oh, it's interesting, there's something new emerging here. People have got some energy for it, let's run. Whoever comes are the right people. So if there are two or three people and nobody else is really interested, then you sit down with those two or three people and say, so you're on your own here, you get two or three people. Do you want to act? Do you want to, do you want to work given that you've only got two or three people? Yes, we do. Might have the little coaching conversation with them about um, how can we support you? What are you trying to achieve? How realistic do you think it is? So just having those duty of care conversations so people don't burn themselves out. But not, that's not to try to stop them, but it's just to support them. Um, and you set them free and let them run with it. So I think that's from in terms of if you're asking what's the relationship between the emergent system and the existing system of the organisation, there's an, always that kind of interplay or conversation occurs. Mm. But, um, do you want to say anything about that, Peter? Or, um, well, well one of our favourite examples here of how emergence works is that uh, here we are on Wednesday afternoon sitting in my office and 25 metres away from us is the English Conversation Group. And the English Conversation Group emerged out of a play group that never happened. So we had someone in the cathedral community notice that there were mums walking around the town pushing prams and thought, oh, we should set up a playgroup. So we said, go for it. And so they advertised and a group of people gathered one Wednesday morning to set up a playgroup and one person arrived with a toddler and that person really only wanted a bit of advice about something and so three or four helpers looked after the toddler while the person got the advice they went it and they went away and that sort of pattern repeated itself for about four or five weeks one person turning up really wanting with another agenda not really wanting a, a play group but it was a way for them to get the information they were seeking and meanwhile, the group of helpers were organising themselves into making coffee, setting up tables for people to sit at, and that turned into a ministry called Coffee on Wednesdays, or Cows, <laughs> which just emerged out of this non-existent play group. And then uh, one of the people who was helping with cows recognised that many of the people who were calling in to have a cup of coffee were foreign language students who were looking for a safe place to practise their English. And so out of that emerged English conversations. So out of the idea of a playgroup, we got two ministries of cows, which is a fantastic ministry of hospitality, and English conversations. If we'd applied the good old vision mission type approach to it and had KPIs we would have shut the whole thing down on week four because we weren't getting the kids mm. but because we were attentive and by then you know, at this stage we'd been using open space for our parish visioning days for three or four years and so people had become sensitive to the idea of emergence and that ideas that bubbled up out of the visioning day may, may take three or four years to find their way to the surface in a different way to they were first floated. So people had that sense of being attending, attending to what was happening rather than what we wanted to happen. And because people were had that sense of, oh, well, let's see what emerges, we ended up with these two ministries. But if we'd had the old model, we would have shut it down because it never worked. Often when I listen back to these podcasts, I'm a bit of a slow learner myself, Michael. I'll pick up on threads that started 20 minutes before I realised they did in the room when we are recording them that I uh, I wish I had 
noticed earlier, and I think one that I'm going to pick up on listening back to this is the importance of self-organization and emergence and understanding that that is how the world works. Mm. Um, and I suppose that is to tie into the listening. It's not just a deep listening to what this person's saying to me. It's a listening to, well, hang on, what is going, what's happening here? Because I suppose the current is running already mm. and it's about tuning in and listening. Um, can you just speak a bit on, on I guess, that, that sense of self-organisation of the world? Yes, um, I think that's right. Um, I mean, the story that popped into my mind is when I um, was in a little parish in Perth about 15 years ago, um, which is when I was just starting to get on to this stuff about paying attention to emergence. Um, I remember having conversations with four or five or six people over a period of time who didn't know each other and they were completely independent conversations um, where four or five people independently of each other said you know it'd be great to start a community garden around this church I think that's something would be really great for this community and that's not something I had primed them for and they didn't know each other so I don't think they'd had previous previous conversations but I would call that an, an experience of what's described as synchronicity. So it's when you get surprising connections happen where the same idea kind of keeps reoccurring. You keep seeing it popping up in different contexts. So that, to me, then presented the topic for an open space, which was who's interested in a community garden in Lockridge and what might it look like? So even the question itself was not about me driving that question from my ego's point of view, but from the fact that I'd already started to recognise a pattern within the community. And for me, from a Christian theological point of view, this is about discernment or listening to the work of the Spirit already at work in the community. So all the open space process did was it provided a space in which to try to discern, track, um, listen to that movement of the spirit that we thought was there and to see where it went. Now that resulted in the establishment initially of a prototype community garden, which was simply a, getting a bunch of straw, sticking it in the in the grounds of the church with a fence around it, sticking some water on it, throwing a few potatoes in there to see what would happen. But eventually resulted in us acquiring a long lease on the next door block, Shire block, um, getting offers from the Shire, getting community funding grants started coming in, community development water projects, building of a pizza oven, art projects with the local school, and the thing kind of took off. And now if you go, if you want to type into Facebook Lockridge Community Garden, you'll find that 15 years after I left the place, the place is going strong. Um, I think it's a beautiful example of something literally growing out of the ground, out of the discernment and the listening to the spirit and for me it was a whole lot of fun and required very little work on my part and Harrison Owen one of the things Harrison Owen says is never work harder than you have to um, I think it scares some of us particularly clergy for not working too hard and looking like we're busy all the time how are you are you busy not really <laughs> <You know. laughs> emergence is happening around here uh, it is a relinquishing of control and it's interesting because <laughs> so. we've spoken about obviously the first part of it being or the, the the first step involved being having a a group that is listening to what's emerging the second is then enabling that new life in a in a way that continues to listen and then the third bit is as naturally happens in the cycle of life listening to when that thing perhaps might be might be dying uh mm, you're going to mm. say this michael that yep. communities churches groups and companies wind up and new ones are born the job of leaders is not to protect communities from inevitable death but to support them through it to become midwives of new lives uh, and i think that's a really interesting thing to touch on because that's one step often if i mean i know a church i've been involved with had an, a service that had hundreds of people attending a few years ago people would come by busload to get there and they have struggled for 10 years since that dwindled to accept the death of that that phenomenon. Mm. They are still trying to get back there. They're still talking about the glory days. They, they still won't even let go of the name of the service that they mm. ran it under because those were the glory days. That's what they're trying to, let, to, to hold on to. So 
how do you then continue to not get attached to the new idea that's come out of this emergent uh, emergence but continue to listen to when perhaps things are dying as well i think that's a great question um i'm not it's a painful conversation to have i think the main thing is to have it rather than deny it so to be having the conversation sitting people in a circle and naming what you've just named and talking about it because we can sometimes particularly those of us who are clergy can sometimes want to avoid that conversation for a couple of reasons Um, one because we may take it personally as a sign of failure Uh, secondly well often our livelihood is actually linked to the health of the and size of the community so if we're not paying the bills and getting our stipend covered the bishop's going to start breathing down our throats as part of the job of a bishop is (laughs) you know is to actually be asking questions like well you know we've got to pay you guys so where are you going to stay here you're going to move on and so it's it's tied up with a whole lot of very complicated um, psychodynamic factors in the mind of the priest but and therefore it's even more important that it get put on the table and get talked about so that was one thing in response to your question and the other story i guess that popped into my mind was um some of uh, some of us may have heard of the benedictine monastery in new norcia in uh, Western Australia, which has been running for a long time, 150 years or something. And I once I was have, chatting to the abbot there, who's now um, gone, um, died, a placid spirit, lovely, holy man. And I saw him being interviewed. Um, I spoke to him and also saw him being interviewed on the TV about the declining number of monks in his community and um, whether he was worried about the, whether the community would um, just become extinct. At that stage, I think there was himself and about three other monks in this huge monastic town, um, well, huge for three people. And um, he very calmly said, oh, I'm not that worried, you know, um, take the long view. Over the centuries, communities have been formed, monasteries have become very big, and monasteries have died and closed, and new monasteries pop up in other places. And he was incredibly relaxed about the whole thing, and I thought, well, that's a real trust in the spirit he didn't see it as a personal failure that his monastery might close i think the um what's really interesting about emergence is that it's not static and um we so often i think when we have our old patterns of making decisions and running things they're based on fairly static ideas mm. of things that are they objectively true you know if they were true for then they worked then they're going to keep working now and that is actually quite resistant to the spirit that's resistant to the the death and resurrection pattern you know, the hardest part of emergence, I think, is walking into death, walking into death of your ego, death of what you most most cherish dreams of the way you'd like to see it done, death of yourself being right, you know. And you've got to walk into all of that, death of something that you loved that was running beautifully for the last 20 years and just now doesn't seem to be the time anymore. And you've got to be prepared to walk into that death, recognise there's no energy. I think energy is a great word in emergence. You can always tell, and we all have this capacity to tell where there's energy around an idea, around an, an action, around something new bubbling up. And, and you need to be able to discern where that energy is and let go of that which doesn't have energy, which is dying, for something new to be resurrected. And if, as Christians, we can't get this paschal pattern, mm. you know, we remain wedded to um, enforcing, you know, pinned down structures that, that have been and always shall be mm. forever, amen, you know, then we are actually anti-spirit. Uh, yeah, I, another story very early in my... Um Picking up the same thing you were talking about, Sue, very early in my priestly career, a couple of years in, I had to stand up in front of a congregation of 35 people and say, we're closing the doors in this place in um, uh, in a month and look at the uh, shocked looks on their faces. And, when, and to my shame, when I look back on it, I realised this is an example of top-down decision-making of the worst kind. So the bishop... And I had had a conversation. The bishop had said, do you think this community is sustainable? We're currently pumping this huge amount of money in every year to pay your stipend. I said, honestly, I think probably not. Um, That's my opinion. And so he said, right, we're closing it. The The first the congregation got to hear about that was when I stood up on the Sunday morning and said, it's closing. And these are people who had put seven years of blood, sweat and tears into this place. I think that's appalling. Uh, but back then, we weren't having these kind of conversations that we're having today. Nowadays, if that was happening, we I would be saying to the bishop, 
come out to the parish, let's sit down, let's sit in a circle and let's talk about this and put it on the table so that it becomes the conversation of the community. And ultimately the bishop still might need to make the decision that he or she is charged with, but at least we've had the honesty of laying it on the table. Mm. I think that's a more collaborative process. And I think that that deep listening ties into a lot of this. I was in a bookstore recently with my dad and I I don't know anything about this book, but it had a title that captured both of us, which was, every time I find the meaning of life, they change it. (laughs) 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 We both enjoyed it. And I guess guess that's what this is saying is anytime you try to pin this down, you try to say, okay, now we have the formula that's working. Mm. Now we have the program that's working. Mm. Well, actually that's, you've just fallen right back into the old system because Mm. it's constant listening Mm. to well, what's emerging, what's dying, what's got life, what perhaps doesn't, and uh, and being able to have, and I guess that's what, you know, to answer the very first question I asked you in this podcast, what do you mean by space maker? It is creating room, creating space to listen, to to be able to see what is growing and what is dying. Yes, I like that. Nicely yeah. put. Yes. Well, we might wrap that up there. Thank I think you, that's uh, that's come full circle in quite a beautiful way in the end there. <laughs> uh, if you do want to get in touch with the On The Way podcast, we do have a Facebook page. Search for On The Way on Facebook. We'd love you to like the page or send a message through with any questions or guest suggestions you'd like to see us get on the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Peter, Sue and Michael. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. And, it's been uh, great. We'll be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly.